Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to week 36 of Systematic Theology. Last week, I taught on what the Bible says about Satan. I'm not teaching this morning. J.D. is teaching on what the Bible says about Satan's minions, the demons. But I wanted to have just a quick minute to let you know that there was a slide that I showed last week that we've edited out. So if you go back and look at my lesson for what book did Scott reference, there was one that I totally disagreed with. I barely used it, but I left it as a bibliography reference. But I don't want anybody to think that it was an endorsement of that book. So if you go back and watch my lesson last week and you wonder, where's that book Scott referenced? It's gone. So thank you, Bryce Miller, for doing that. And I just wanted to be clear on that. Um, And so thank you, J.D., for giving me 90 seconds of your time to do that. Uh, I'm going to go back and teach the little kids Sunday school this morning, so I'm really looking forward, once they post this lesson online, to watch what you have for us today. But I would like to pray and ask the Lord to bless this lesson this morning, if you'd bow with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we're so grateful, Lord, to have this opportunity to study what your word says on this topic and all topics, Lord. You have revealed truth to us. I ask that you would bless J.D.'s teaching this morning, that you would speak through your word, that once again we might understand uh, the things of the world that you created, that we would ultimately understand how they all glorify you. It is to your glory and honor, Lord. We thank you again and ask your blessing on this lesson. And on J.D.'s teaching this morning and on uh, the worship service later today. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Why don't you come up here and share, J.D.? Thanks. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate Scott and Carrie and Stephen and how all three of them have faithfully taught in this class. And appreciate Scott's willingness to, to add that correction as we go. As we are working through the doctrine of angelology... Um, Just as review, um, a few weeks ago I gave an introduction to this section in our our doctrinal survey. We talked about angels. What are angels? What are their purpose? What's their nature? What does the Bible teach about angels? Last week, Scott covered uh, specifically Satan, um, a fallen angel, the prince of the demons. And so, so if some of the things that I won't cover today um, were referenced last week, but this is an extension of that. We're going to talk about demons, fallen angels, and then next week what we'll do, um, because we know that, that oftentimes topics like this raise a lot of questions, and we know we won't cover everything. At the end of every section, what we typically do is have sort of a Q&A session, a, a panel discussion, and whoever has taught during that section of theology will be available to maybe discuss some additional um, some additional truths that we didn't get a chance to, to cover in our lesson. And also, that's a chance for you guys to ask questions. And I know the temptation is for that to become sort of like our small groups where we all have something to share, and we enjoy that. We do that usually on Wednesday nights, Thursday nights. But if you have questions and you say, well, what about this? Or what about this passage? Or how does that relate to this? Or how should I handle this situation? Those are questions to make note of and be sure to bring those next week, and we will make ourselves available. And as always, we can't promise to answer every question, but we will do our best to, to give you our understanding of what Scripture says about those things. So today, if there's any questions that come up uh, about demons, about fallen angels, write those down, and you can even give us a heads up before next week um, if you want. That will help us be better prepared to answer those questions. But we're going to talk about angelology today, specifically looking at demons. 
Before we get into this topic, I want to refresh our memories on something that is always true, no matter what we're studying. And we have to understand, where do we get our truth? Before we even have the conversation about angels or demons or the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Scripture, whatever it is, where do we get our truth? I think it's especially helpful as we consider the subject of demons just to affirm that we do not get our truth from the field of science. Um, physical science in the natural realm is simply not able to answer all the questions. It's not able to give us comprehensive answers about all of reality. It's limited in its scope. So we don't look to the field of science to tell us what is ultimately true about spiritual matters, including demons. We definitely don't want to look to Hollywood to get our truth. And unfortunately, too many people's concept of angels and demons and Satan is more formed by science fiction and by horror movies and maybe whether it's books or whether it's film. And it's formed more by those things than by scripture. We don't want to look to Hollywood to get our truth. In addition, we don't look to superstition or folklore. There's sort of a, a collection of ideas and a received truth that, many that shapes many people's thinking when it comes to demons. But it doesn't come from scripture. It comes from superstition and stories and, and things that have been handed down from various sources. And finally, we don't even look to our personal experience. Maybe you have a story. Or maybe you've heard other people tell stories. We want to interpret our stories through the lens of biblical truth. We don't want to interpret biblical truth through the lens of our stories. So again, just before we even have this discussion, we want to affirm that Scripture is our highest and final authority when it comes to the subject of demons or when it comes to any subject. This means that we reject anti-supernaturalism, the purely materialistic worldview that says something is only real if we can touch it, test it, and prove it scientifically. Uh, we reject that. We know that there is more to reality than what our eye can see. It also means that we reject sort of stylized representations of, of demons that come from Hollywood or from superstition or folklore. And it means we don't rely on firsthand stories or experiences to determine what we believe. Scripture is the lens through which we interpret everything. Our stories, experiences we have, what other people claim, Scripture is our highest and final authority. And a word of wisdom before we begin. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters, this is in the introduction, uh, he writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And The Screwtape Letters is about these, it's a fictional imagined account of, of a, a senior demon and a lower ranking demon writing letters back and forth. And in his introduction, he says, there's two errors we can fall into. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis showed a lot of wisdom in giving us this caution that if we take a materialistic view, pretending that demons don't really exist, not taking them seriously, they are delighted by that. That sets us up to be deceived. But also at the same time, if we have this excessive unhealthy interest, like what he calls a magician, someone who is superstitious, someone who is overly interested and dabbles in these matters, they also delight in that because they're getting more attention, more attention than they deserve. And that also sets us up and makes us vulnerable to deception. I had a professor whose, 
whose word of wisdom kind of summarized this. He says, get informed, but don't get interested. And I think that's our goal today, is I want you to be biblically informed as to what demons are, but I don't want to in any way um, encourage an unhealthy, excessive interest in them. We need to understand what Scripture says and understand how we are to think from Scripture. So let's dive into what the Bible says. What are demons? Very simply, demons are fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. Jude 1, or Jude verse 6 rather, says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What this verse tells us is that there are angels who rebelled. They violated God's authority. They left their proper dwelling. And so there is a category of being um, called demons, but they're really angels. That's all they are, fallen angels who, like Satan, rebelled against God. There's over 100 times in Scripture where demons are referred to. Sometimes they're called demon. Sometimes they're called a spirit, an unclean spirit, an evil spirit or harmful spirit, or a deceiving spirit. But it's very evident from Scripture that they are real, they exist, and they were originally angels. Which means that if you go back to our lesson from two weeks ago, everything we said about angels also applies to demons. They were created by God. So they're not infinite, pre-existent beings on par with God. They belong in the category of creation, just like you and me. They are spiritual beings, meaning they do not have a body like ours. They are spiritual they possess intellectual and moral capabilities. They're highly intelligent, and they can either serve God and his glorious purposes, or they can rebel against him and do evil, wicked things. They are moral, and they're held morally responsible. Demons, like angels, cannot experience redemption. The angels have no need to, but the demons are not eligible. Jesus did not become an angel to atone for the sins of angels. He became a man to atone for the sins of men. So the demons are beyond redemption and grace. Their purpose for existing is to serve God. Now they have rebelled against that. So this has been distorted. This is why they are judged by God is because they do not serve him as they should. Instead, they now serve Satan and they seek to advance his purposes rather than God's. They reflect his character, evil and wickedness, rather than God's glory and righteousness. The demons, like angels, appear to have rank and class. They are referenced as these dominions and authorities and powers. There's an organization, a taxonomy to it. They are far greater in power than humans. We'll see this from the book of Acts later. They are destined to be judged by humans. Um, God is going to, according to Romans, soon crush Satan under our feet. They are cosmic spectators in God's divine drama of redemption. They see what's going on. They see what God is doing in the world. Now, they hate it, and they're trying to oppose it, but they can't help but observe what God is doing. And therefore, they will be forced to acknowledge the supremacy of Christ and the glory of God when Jesus returns, because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They must never be worshipped or sought after. They must never be trusted above Scripture. We have to be on guard against their deception. And they have an unexpected and hidden presence in the world. They are active, they are here, we just don't always see them. So everything we said about angels also applies to demons with the clarification that there's obviously some things that have been corrupted by their rebellion. What's their activity in biblical history? 
Well, or demons, rather, in biblical history, as we read scripture, we see that they are active in serving Satan's agenda of deception. Satan is a liar and has been so from the beginning. And these demons are often called lying spirits or deceiving spirits. So they serve to advance his agenda. Satan's agenda is to oppose God, to oppose God's purposes, to destroy God's plans, and especially opposing the redemption of people who are made in God's image. We know that demons are active in Satan's agenda of destruction. Satan is a destroyer, and the demons participate in that. Um, they are active in serving Satan's agenda in opposing God, his truth, his purpose, and his people. And again, you can see Scott's lesson last week for more on how Satan does all of these things. But we're told in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a conflict and these demons are engaged in that conflict, opposing God and everything that God is doing and opposing God's people. But all of this, just like Scott um, pointed out so faithfully last week, all of this is underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign will. They are no threat to God. God is not worried about what they're doing. God is not in any way straining to somehow gain victory over them. They are completely under the umbrella of his sovereign will. In fact, in 1 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 18, two different accounts of the same story, we see that a lying spirit is sent forth specifically to do the will of God. So they are completely under his control. And while they serve Satan in opposing God, ultimately, they are simply pieces on the chessboard that carry out God's glorious Purposes. He brings all things together according to the counsel of his will. The New Testament by far contains the most detailed accounts of demonic activity. And every time they are shown repeatedly to be under the authority of Christ. I encourage you sometime just to read through one of the Gospels and just highlight all the times you see demonic activity. And highlight how they respond to Jesus. They're afraid of him. They beg him for mercy. And they obey him without question. Every single time. So they are under the umbrella of God's sovereign will. Specifically, they are under the authority of Christ as we survey their activity in biblical history. But this brings up a big question for us, especially as we read the New Testament. We see that there, is, there are often cases where people seem to be under the control of a demon. We say, what is demon possession? That's a, probably one of the biggest questions that popped up in your mind before we even got past the first slide. What, what is that about? How does that work? What does it mean? Well, the Greek word daemonizomai is often translated as possessed by a demon or having a demon. But the word possession is really not used in the Greek text. It's demonized. But it does, I think the, the English trans, translation of possession is accurate. Because to be demonized in the New Testament, if we sort of categorize all the different instances that we see, it seems to refer and to describe the indwelling presence of an unclean spirit in a person. And that's why Jesus casts them out or drives them out, because they appear to be on the inside. And it's this indwelling presence that exerts control over a person and inflicts harm. We see that there's spiritual harm, emotional harm, physical harm that is done to those who are indwelt by this unclean spirit. 
And we also see that signs of this include um, great physical strength that's exerted. We think of the man who was dwelling in the tombs, and they had tried to chain him, and every time he would break the chains and beat uh, the people that were trying to subdue him. Uh, We see a number of physical illnesses, even things like being deaf and mute or having epileptic seizures. Uh, We see other disabilities like being lame. Uh, We see um, unusual abilities such as fortune-telling. There's a girl in Acts who was a fortune-teller. She could tell the future. Um, Although I do want to make clear, um, like Scott said last week, Satan and all the demons, they are not all-knowing like God. However, because they observe everything, because they're able to travel and be in different places and see different things, it should be no surprise if a demon can tell you something that only you would know. Something that happened in secret, something that happened decades ago. Or if a demon could tell you something that was going to happen in the future because he's heard someone else talking about those plans. So demons may be able to give off the impression that they know the future. They really don't. They just know a lot more than we do. They see a lot more than we do. Um, And they're pretty shrewd. But we do see that there's a girl in the book of Acts that was being exploited as as a fortune teller. So these are some sort of the unique uh, symptoms of demon possession that we see in Scripture. However, we should make it clear that not every evidence of illness, not every person who's deaf or mute or lame, is so because they have a demon. We know that there's the man who was lame, and and the disciples asked, why was this man born, or, or blind rather, why was he born blind? And their assumption was that, well, either his parents or he must have done something wrong. Their assumption was that God was judging him. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, no, he's blind because he has a demon. That's not the answer either. He says, no, he was born this way so that God could be glorified when I heal him. So we know that not every illness, not every sickness is an example of demon uh, possession. We know that Timothy was sick. And Paul didn't exercise the demon of Stomach pain, he simply told him, take a little wine for your stomach. So I want to make clear that not every um, instance of disability or illness um, or seizure is evidence of a demon. Some people think that, and it actually does great harm. I have a dear friend who's deaf, and she's told me in, in tears about how she's been in churches where they lay hands on her, and they try to drive out the demon of deafness. And she's saying, I love Jesus. I want to worship him. There's no demon here. This is just how God made me. And God's glorified in my deafness. Um, so there's great harm and confusion that can be caused by sort of over-interpreting everything as demonic, and we'll talk about that later. But we do know that demon possession is real. We see clear evidence of it in Scripture. And some may ask, so is that happening today in the same way? Um, there are stories, and some of us have them, and some of us have seen things, and it is a real possibility for this to happen today. However, it seems that this sort of demonic activity ramped up with the presence of Jesus. Remember that Satan, at every point in history, has been opposing God. So when God sends his son into the world to do something, it makes sense that Satan would also ramp up his presence and his activity in the world. And we see that Jesus um, encounters this, and he actually is picking a fight more, af- more often than not. Yes, he has compassion on these people. But Jesus' purpose was not to come into the world and cast out every demon. His purpose was to display that he really is the Son of God. To authenticate his power and to signal that the kingdom of God has indeed come upon them because he's there. Um, Jesus is accused of using demonic power in Matthew 12. They're trying to explain how is it that Jesus casts out demons. And some are saying, well, he does it by the power of Satan. 
He must have a demon. Jesus argues back with them and says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, therefore they will be your judges. He's saying, listen, your, your claim, your accusation makes no sense. This is illogical and contradictory. And then he presses in further. He says, here's the real um, truth about me casting out demons in verse 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, listen, the reason I'm casting out demons is to show you that the kingdom of God is present in the sense that the king is here. And I have this kind of authority. I can bind Satan. And in fact, that's the reason I've come, is to plunder his house, to lead out a host of captives, people that are right now spiritually in bondage to sin and Satan and death. And that was the real explanation for what Jesus was doing. So the question many people have then is, well, can a Christian be possessed? And I apologize, my font is really small on this slide. I didn't get this one edited in time, but I'll read it for you. Can a Christian be possessed? The very short answer, I believe, is no. And I think this is clear from Scripture. There's a number of reasons for this. The Christian belongs to Christ. So we cannot be possessed by a devil. Romans chapter 1, verse 6 says that we are called to belong to Christ. And we know that Jesus is stronger than the demons. Jesus is the strong man who has bound them and plundered their house. And he's not going to lose what he has taken. The Christian, likewise, is indwelt by and sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is also obviously stronger than the demons. The Holy Spirit is God. Ephesians 1.13 says we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.4 4 tells us, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So if you think about playing king of the mountain, if the Holy Spirit is in you, no unclean spirit, no evil spirit is going to be able to enter in or drive him out. Third, salvation is described as deliverance from the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13 tells us this. We've been delivered from that domain, the domain of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his son. So we've been delivered. We cannot be possessed. Romans 8 tells us that we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. We are more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from his love. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15.57 that God gives us the victory in Christ. There is no loss. There is no failure or, or an ability to be repossessed, as it were. 2 Corinthians 2.14 tells us God always leads us in triumph with Christ. 1 John 2.13-14 tells us that we have overcome the evil one. So I do not believe it is possible for a Christian to be possessed. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God... Someone who's been truly born again, someone who's been saved, someone who's been made new, a new creation, someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning in a habitual, unrepentant way. But he who has been born of God protects, or he who was born of God, referring to Christ, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Christ protects us if we're born again and the evil one cannot touch us. 
That's the clear teaching of Scripture. So it is therefore inconceivable. It is impossible. It's a contradiction for a Christian to be possessed, to be indwelt by an unclean spirit. But, here's the important but, that does not mean that there is no threat. We still can be deceived. We can be harassed. We can be opposed by the demons. Even though they cannot possess us, they cannot control us, they cannot indwell us. So how is it that we avoid their deception? In a number of ways. Number one, we need to reject false doctrine. This might seem counterintuitive. If you're thinking about engaging against the demons in some sort of Hollywood way, I want to shift your perspective again to Scripture. We avoid the demonic deception by rejecting false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul's talking about false doctrine. False doctrine is demonic. And so we reject false doctrine and so therefore resist the demonic influence in this world. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This word strongholds is very popular among those who are sort of fixated and obsessed with demonic activity. But what are strongholds? Well, verse 5 defines it. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's in rejecting false doctrine that we destroy strongholds. It's in upholding the truth that we take every thought captive. And we fortify ourselves, therefore, against the activity of our enemy. So how can we avoid demonic deception? We, first of all, reject false doctrine. Second of all, we need to reject enslaving sins. When we sin habitually, when we, are give, when we give ourselves over to sin... We are embracing the deception of the demons. We're believing their lies. We're cooperating with their agenda. And in habitual sin, what we do is we grieve the Holy Spirit within us and we quench the Holy Spirit within us. We're dampening his power and his influence, his control over our lives. When our armor is laid aside, you know, Ephesians 6 says we're to put on the whole armor of God and it's faith. And it's walking in the truth. When we lay those things aside and instead exhibit unbelief in our sin, we become vulnerable. Like all of our armor is in a pile over there on the floor in the corner. And we're now susceptible to demonic influence in the sense of enslaving sins and deception. Not that we're going to be somehow possessed or controlled, but that we are being defeated. We are being defeated. So we need to reject enslaving sins. Third, we need to reject Christless spirituality. I won't go in depth into this because I think the point is very simple, but things that have to do with New Age spirituality, obviously things that are occultic in nature, people become very interested in the paranormal. They're opening themselves up to deception. There is a a desire to experience something transcendent. There's a desire to know the unknown that can open you up to demonic deception. We need to reject Christless spirituality, any sort of transcendence, any sort of secret knowledge that is not according to Christ. Um, This would include false religion. 
This would include New Age mysticism. This would include the occult. And even I would include this, the worship of self. I think that much sexual perversion in our world today is really the worship of self. And it is a false worship, and it is demonic in nature. It is so destructive, and it is so counter to God's design and, and what is good. It is evil, and, and it's destructive. Um, but false religion as well, as, as we look through Scripture, we see that counterfeit truth, counterfeit power, a counterfeit experience of the transcendent is really demonic. In Leviticus 17, verse 7, it says, They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. The children of Israel had been sacrificing to false gods. And Leviticus 17 calls these false gods, whether it was Baal or Ashtaroth or some other Egyptian god or Canaanite god, says they're really demons. Deuteronomy 32.17 says they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. Deuteronomy connects the worship of idols with demons. Psalm 106.37 likewise says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul writes, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Revelation 9.20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. False religion, false worship of any kind, has underneath it demonic power. So in order to avoid and reject the deception of demons, we need to reject a Christless spirituality. Basically, to sum up, we need to take them seriously. They do exist, they are real, they are active in the world, but we need to not obsess over them. In fact, if we do become overly fixated on, on resisting demonic activity in the world, we might actually be deceived. Because we actually have a threefold front in this battle that we are called to. Our enemy is threefold. There's the world. That's this system of thinking, the, the way the world operates that is geared against Christ. There's the flesh, our own indwelling sinful tendencies. And then there's the devil, Satan and his spiritual army. And we need to be on guard on all three fronts. You think about a general leading his army into battle. If the enemy is on three sides and he only wages warfare on one front, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to get outflanked and he's going to lose. So we have to give equal attention and take care at all three of these levels. Yes, we need to engage the world, but there's some Christians today that think that that's the only enemy. And so if we watch the news enough, we can figure out what the world is doing and we can counteract them. Other people think that their flesh is the only problem that they have. If I could only, keep, if I could only beat this one besetting sin I have, that's really my only problem is this one sin I'm struggling with. Well, that's kind of narrow-minded. And again, others would fixate on Satan. And they would find a demon behind every illness, a demon behind every temptation, a demon behind every sinful struggle, a demon behind anything negative that happens in the world. You know, the sound system's not working today for church. We need to cast out the demon of, you know... No, we need to ask Terry to you know, check the electrical problems or something. Like Sometimes that stuff just happens. Not everything is demonic. 
So we need to take demons seriously, but don't obsess over them. We need to keep guard on all three fronts against the world and the flesh and the devil. So one more question that typically comes up. So demon possession may be rare today, but it still happens. Should we engage in exorcism? What are we supposed to do if it appears that there's someone who is being um, oppressed and indwelt and controlled by a demon? Is this supposed to be the main way that we battle? I think it's interesting, again, as we look to Scripture, as we look through the Old Testament, we really don't see any examples of what you would call demon possession. Not that it never happened, but it's really not given any airtime. Um, Old Testament spiritual power is exercised primarily in temptation, deception, and maximizing human sinfulness. The Old Testament um, presents God's people living in the midst of demonic darkness. All of these false religions, all of these false gods, all of these even, even pagan false prophets and witch doctors and, and the magicians of Babylon and, and Egypt, all of that is satanic. But it barely gives any airtime to Satan. It doesn't pay attention to that. Rather, the Old Testament maximizes human responsibility. The answer for idolatry in the Old Testament is not exorcism. It doesn't call for deliverance or rebuking demons or spiritual warfare. The answer in the Old Testament is a call to repentance and faith. Fear God, turn from sin, reject idols, and worship him alone. This is the overwhelming emphasis. So if we're looking for tips on how to do exorcism, the Old Testament tells us nothing. It simply gives us an example of calling people to repent of sin and fear God, to believe in him, to trust in him alone. Similarly, in the New Testament, when we read it, we do find examples of exorcism. But what we find in the New Testament is that spiritual power, dark spiritual power, is defeated by Christ. And the power of Christ is in the preaching of the gospel. Jesus and the apostles cast out demons, and they did so with a special kind of authority. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And I don't try to do all the things that Jesus did. Likewise, you're not an apostle, and neither am I. And God empowered them with special authority and ability. And he did so for a reason. It, it was twofold. Number one, to authenticate the gospel. When Jesus cast out demons, or when the apostles cast out demons, they were proving that what they were saying was true. We no longer have to prove that what we are saying is true. We have scripture. We have a resurrected savior. We have 2,000 years of proof. As the gospel has marched on throughout history despite everyone's attempt to stamp it out. Likewise, the preaching of the gospel, or rather, likewise, the, the casting out of demons was not just to authenticate the gospel message, it was to illustrate the gospel message. When Jesus set someone free, or when he healed them, he was illustrating that he's the one who has the power to make us whole, to save us, to make us new, to repair what has been broken by sin. All of Jesus' miracles do this, and so do the miracles of the apostles. They illustrate the gospel. So if this kind of exorcism ministry in the New Testament seems to point us to the gospel, it, the gospel is really our best weapon in terms of engaging with demonic oppression. We preach the gospel as the power of God for salvation. That's what Romans 1.16 tells us it is. So the solution for the demonized, the solution for the person who is suffering from, from demonic presence in their life, the solution for them is to repent of sin and believe in Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. 
The solution is not for you or me to try to somehow drive out the demon. In fact, Jesus says if we do that, if you cast out the demon, he's just going to go wander around, go get some of his buddies and come back. And the new situation will be actually worse than the first. So I don't think we should engage in exorcism-type ministry. I think that was unique for Jesus and the apostles. In fact, turn to Acts chapter 19. When I was a kid, this story, I first heard this story, and it blew me away. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Acts chapter 19, 11 <clears throat> tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty amazing. Verse 13 says, <clears throat> Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they think there's some sort of formula. If we can just say the right words and somehow leverage the authority of Christ's name, we can drive out these demons. <clears throat> and it says that seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And notice the result. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. <clears throat> the power is not in some formula that we leverage to drive out demons. And I would strongly encourage you not to ever try it because these guys did and it didn't go well for them. Where is the power? Well, the power is in Christ. The power is in his word. And when the word is preached, when the word increases, people who are involved in demonic practices repent and they burn their stuff, no matter how valuable it is, and they fear God. So what do we need to do? Well, it's not leverage some sort of formulaic approach to driving out demons. We need to preach the word because when the word of the Lord increases, it prevails, and Christ is magnified, and he is feared, and people turn away from their sin, and they repent. This is the solution. This is the solution. If you are um, engaged in a situation like this, do not think that you need to somehow say the right words, muscle up, and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the demons. I don't think that's what God is calling us to do. <clears throat> How do we combat them? <clears throat> if you think you're experiencing some sort of demonic presence or activity, if, if there's something happening in your life and you're going, whoa, this is demonic and dark, what do you need to do? Well, first of all, believe the truth. Believe the truth. Rehearse the truth to yourself of who Christ is, his victory, and believe it. Do not believe false doctrine. Do not believe superstition. Believe the truth. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we are to take up the shield of faith with which we extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked. Lies are the weapons 
Faith is the shield. That's how we resist. Believe the truth. We're told time and time again, especially in the book of James and in Peter, that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So we believe the truth, and in doing so, we're resisting him. No, I will not listen to your temptations. No, I will not listen to your lies. No, I will not fear you. I will believe in God. I will resist you. And it says that Satan will flee. We're to put on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. And it's, it's really amazing. If you go through Ephesians 6 and read through all of those different pieces of armor, every one of them are attached back to the gospel. The way you arm yourself is by preaching the gospel to yourself, believing in the gospel, resting in the gospel, meditating on the gospel, rehearsing the gospel. That's how we arm ourselves. And then we walk in the light. The darkness hates the light. We don't cover our sin. We confess it. We don't dabble in things that are dark. We seek Christ and walk in the light. What do you do if you suspect a demonic presence or activity in another person? <clears throat> Maybe there's someone you're sharing the gospel with and it becomes clear that there's something very strange going on. Well, I just encourage you, number one, pray. There's no need to speak to demons. Speak to God. He can do something about it. Rather than us trying to do something about it, ask God to do something about it. In fact, there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples, and the rest of them had been trying unsuccessfully to cast out a demon from this man's child. And Jesus does it, and later the disciples said, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, this kind only comes out with much prayer. If Jesus prayed in order to cast out a demon, that's what we need to do. Pray and ask God to grant deliverance to a person who seems to be suffering. So don't speak to the demons. First of all, speak to God. Second of all, we speak to those who are suffering. Speak to the person. Tell them the good news. Preach the gospel to them. Call them to faith and repentance. What Satan and his demons do is seek to blind people, according to 1 Corinthians, to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the gospel. But here's the thing. No demon is stronger than God. And if God calls a sinner to salvation, if God tells a dead person to wake up, if God tells a chained person to walk out of the dungeon, it'll happen. And so we pray for them. We pray for God to save them. And we proclaim the gospel to them. And we tell them the good news. We tell them about the freedom that is found in Christ. We call them to faith and repentance. The power of God is in the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. So we proclaim the gospel and we rehearse the victory of Christ and rejoice in it. We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to try to battle against demons somehow in our own strength. We simply cry out to God and we preach the gospel. And we trust that God is greater than our enemy. Luke eleven twenty says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's a superior power in Christ. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, referring to spiritual powers. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is referring to the cross. At the cross, the enemy was humiliated. <clears throat> 1 Peter 3.22 tells us that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Ephesians 1.21 tells us Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So we rehearse the truth of Christ. We believe in Christ. We proclaim the good news of Christ. Romans 8 tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes powers, angels, spiritual powers. 
Romans 16.20 tells us the good news, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is great news, and it's a great note to end on. We have victory in Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. So I hope that's been helpful to you to get sort of a biblical survey of how we should think about demons. What are these fallen angels, and how should we understand their role in the world and our responsibility to resist and combat their activity? If you have questions, be sure to bring those next week. We'll have some discussion about angels, Satan, and demons. But I hope that throughout all of this, it has served to not just inform you about spiritual powers, but I hope that it has exalted Christ in your eyes to see that he is greater. He rules over all. And all of these spiritual powers are under his feet. You are dismissed.